everyone, this is Mike for Dark Days Radio, episode number 23. And with me tonight, we have Chris. Hello. And the man himself, David Hill Jr. How are you, David? I am here. I am okay. Excellent to talk to you. Thanks for the time. Yeah, it's like the third or fourth, I think. I believe it is the third, because you were previously on the show uh, just as a regular guest, and then you also came on to talk about Machine Zeit, and we'll be discussing all that uh, a little bit later. Uh, so just to uh, jump right into it, network news. Um, Raj Arcana has been releasing some episodes. They put out one for D&D Month dedicated to Planescape, the campaign setting, and also the rules uh, cyclopedia. Have either of you guys checked out those episodes, or do you have any experience with uh, Planescape, for example? Ooh, Planescape? Um, no, I draw a blank on that. I know a little of the setting, but never played it. Hmm. I am um I'm familiar with the video game Planescape Torment. Um actually today it's kind of a weird coincidence. We were just talking about the art from Planescape. I don't know the the books from a hole in the ground, but apparently the art is very good. Um I was I found myself distracted by it. We were discussing um interesting and inclusive art um in RPGs and so I was digging through Planescape art today. Um know very little about it, but it looked really pretty. Hmm, yeah. Actually, one of the very interesting things that they bring up in this episode is that Planescape draws a lot of its uh, design from Vampire the Masquerade and the, the World of Darkest games, uh, specifically because it has these factions that are at war, these ideological factions, and they got the idea by looking at the, the kind of stereotypes that you find in Vampire and Werewolf. It would make a lot of sense. It's, yeah, definitely something that they kind of did first. I'm I'm kind of surprised. I thought Planescape was a little bit older than that, but I guess Vampire's also very old now. Mm. I keep forgetting it's not new. <laughs> cool. Uh, so we're going to skip White Wolf news this week, and we're just going to jump right into the secret frequency presented by Chris. Excellent. Okay, then. Today's secret frequency uh, is a story that comes from a town called Padanello in the province of Brescia in northern Italy. Uh, Padanello is the, in a region known as the uh, of Lombardy and apparently is a picturesque village. The story, though, concerns um, a man during the Renaissance period. His name was Gerardo, uh, the son of a count, and he had a bit of a reputation of being nothing but a dreamer, um, not really living up to the more militant members of his family. He got into dabbling with studies of the occult, and it was through his studies and through talking to other inhabitants of the uh, of the town that he learned of a gathering of witches that met in a field nearby every Thursday night on certain dark periods of the year. So on one Thursday night, Gerardo went to the field, and in the field, uh, amongst the corn, he found a pagan altar and a throne uh, made of stone as well. He waited there, and waited, and waited, and then there was something he could hear in the sky, and he looked up and saw hundreds of these witches descend on the field. Now, these weren't just witches in the sense of uh, they're wearing black hats or cloaks. No, they were quite random in their forms. Some were giant cats, others goats with human heads, and some were red-eyed bulls with uh, demon wings and Gerardo did what any other poor fool would do and he hid behind the single tree in the field and then at midnight on a la in, a, uh, in the form of a large black goat appeared Satan the company of witches began a dance around the altar and around the throne and this frantic dance then finally ended in 
the most blasphemous orgies ever. It was at this point that a one witch noted that Gerardo was behind the tree and Satan ordered the young man from behind the tree to join in in the orgy. Gerardo though, yes he may well have been studying the cult, was also a good Christian, uh, if anything but lazy, and he refused. The skies then suddenly opened up, spat lightning out, hail and winds upon the uh, town of Padanello. Villagers cowed in the houses, and the, the next day they even went as far as dousing the courtyards of their village with holy water. But the one thing that the villagers did find in the morning was that in the field there was no longer a field, and in its place Satan had transformed all the witches and Gerardo into trees. The field was now a forest of oaks, and from now on still stands there and is known as Satan's Forest. And apparently that's one of the of a number of tales from that small village in Italy. So what do you think guys? I have to claim that I did not find this, my wife found it for me, and it's bloody awesome. I really want to do a time traveling game where you address that in two eras. <laughs> hmm. That would be pretty awesome, yeah. I mean, as a whether it, I would guess my immediate idea would be yeah, a if you say time traveling uh, time traveling mages maybe it's something to do with involving the bloodline of of that uh, of that renaissance family um, who also appear in another tale um, to do with this white lady so you could you could possibly I think if there's enough tales from that that village wrap together quite a few different ghost stories and and draw them out into some long kind of occult tale that takes place over time and the characters can try and get involved in that way what other ideas do we have for um, for applications other than to how to apply that in games I mean time travel what else something to do with the wood itself I don't know about that, but uh, one thing I was just thinking about when you were talking about the the animals or the witches having different animal forms and being uh, somewhat random, uh, mm. we'll be talking about werewolf a little bit later, and of course, werewolf the apocalypse had the formori who mm. were uh, mutated, and uh, we, we have this black goat appear. That kind of reminds me of the worm, or maybe a, even a black spiral dancer, even though that would be a a black wolf. Um, you can you can have some ideas with that, and I just want to say, man. You Europeans are so lucky with your, you know, <laughs> age-old stories. What do we have here in the United States? Um, got some, like, foundations of houses in the woods that you find randomly. You got, like, literature like The Devil and Tom Walker, which is uh, not very scary or interesting at all, to be perfectly honest. But then Jersey you do have the... Yeah. I was going to say <laughs> that in the U.S. you do have um, the one advantage, is that there's maybe a lot more ancient sites are uh, in some respects not as touched by man through the ages because over here in Europe you can find something that's very old and it's been built upon and built upon and built upon and used again and again over the ages so swings and roundabouts man <laughs> yeah that's true but I mean when you look at the uh, let's say New England where I live right now um, every single tree has been cut down like everything has been forested and all the trees are only like a hundred years old or so um, people have been pretty much everywhere, so that can be pretty cool in some respects when you're just hiking through the woods and you find, as I mentioned before, just the foundation of an old house or just right next to it some old graves that maybe no one has seen in 50 years, maybe more. Uh, so that's always interesting. But, but getting back to the original, uh, original story, uh, something to do with the trees and the woods. Uh, of course, you can have some intrinsic link to the fae since uh, mm. they're typically related to the woods. I want to say you could work this into to Hunter definitely with uh, maybe like a, a blessed stake uh, created from the from the wood of one of these trees. But Hunter is always very easy. I mean, you can work that into any, pretty much <laughs> yeah. any secret frequency we've got. Hmm. Yeah, it's a deep one. I think you could possibly go with um, I don't know. Let's think. 
I, I want to go with something related to uh, Promethean almost. It would be quite interesting if it was, say, using the wood from one of those trees to actually create another Promethean. So it's kind of like, uh, an, uh, uh, you know, the magical bit of ingredient that you need to uh, help a, to help make Promethean and so that a player character Promethean can then achieve one of his miles, one of their milestones. Um, Chris, Chris, you nailed it. You nailed it right there. Oh my god, Promethean? Alright, so perhaps this forest is actually created, that, that black goat was Promethean, yes. a wretched, and those uh, twisted witches were in fact the, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of them right now. Pandorans. Pandorans, exactly. I was going to say. Uh, that, that could definitely work, and then you could have that uh, related to the the current throng of Prometheans uh, as they as they explore Europe, maybe they'll come upon that site and you can involve mm. that into your chronicle uh, as sort of a milestone. Well, a milestone is one of the things in Promethean, so there you go. Yeah. Great. Uh, anything else uh, regarding the secret frequency? I don't know. I would <sighs> I would go for a straight wad game. I, I want to see I want to see a game where you're playing people who were related to those people, like the children left behind um, a few generations back. Uh, they, they did this thing, they made this mistake or whatever, and now you're trying to go back and fix whatever they screwed up. Very good. Outstanding. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea right there. I'm still rolling around an idea with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the classic one you can also go with is just, you know, trees themselves being evil. They don't even need to be Pandorans. Um, the just coming to life in some way. Also, I think going back actually with relation to Promethean though, when it says that the skies immediately opened and spat lightning, I mean, for a Promethean it's also maybe important to, um, as a as a way of understanding the, um, oh, what's the name of the spirits, is it the Quishillum, the, uh, mm -hmm. the spirits yep. of the, of the, of Pyros, so there's, yeah, I think I would totally mine it for Promethean. Cool. Well, uh, with that, I guess we'll move right along to the uh, the main meat of this episode, a Q&A with David Hill. So, uh, David, you've been a real busy beaver lately. Uh, you put out, I know, uh, Invite Only and the Forsaken Chronicler's Guide. Uh, have you been working on anything else with White Wolf that's uh, come out recently or is about to come out? White Wolf? No. Actually, um, that the Forsaken Chronicler's Guide was a very recent thing. Um, Invite only, I worked on a long, long time ago. It kind of got um, put back. There was a lot of um, pushing back with uh, Dance Macabre and everything like that, but you guys are probably aware of that. Um, so Forsaken Chronicler's Guide is the most recent thing that I've worked on with them. I'm not currently doing anything with them. Um, might see about a couple of things in the near future. I'm not sure, though. Uh, so I guess we'll move on to just discussing invite only. I know Chris, you uh, recently read this product, and you've got uh, quite a few questions about it. Yeah, um, I've read it pretty much cover to cover, and it came in. Well, it came out at just the right time for me to actually make use of many of the concepts in my own game uh, for Vampire, which was literally a a uh, almost a a coming out event for a vampire to be. Um, brought into um, prominence amongst the harpies and it was their chance to show themselves off. So um, I think the first thing is like invite only, David, invite only is a very in-depth look at the social aspects of uh, the kin of kindred life um, in, in maybe in, in a more mundane way rather than all the rituals you see in some of the other books. So was that mainly your? Was that your main motivation to uh, look at the just how kindred socialize, in in more detail than had already been presented in the core books or in the, any of the covenant books? Absolutely, I kind of I, I like to look at vampire as people first, and then they've got these trappings on top of them, and I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the stuff that the core book and a lot of the the stuff that some of the covenant books and such they focus on. Um, Kind of constructs that that sound like they came later. Um, so what I wanted to do with invite only was take what I thought the way that I thought people interacted and then sort of apply the vampire template to that. I was looking at a few few pieces of fiction, few movies and such, and really the way that people jerk each other around 
and then I applied fangs to it. Um, so that's definitely <laughs> what I was trying to do nice. there. That's absolutely. I mean, I think that's really cool because I mean, looking at um, some of the the kind of as you say these constructs um, that came come later for the covenants, they're mainly I feel were mainly there to give you some kind of idea of what uh, the covenants about. Whereas really, what vampires do night to night is really the 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 meat of the game. And um, so, did you feel there was something? missing maybe in vampire in general or was it something that you feel that maybe some people were glossing over these these scenes going well oh the vampires have their their meeting in a club and they're all wearing mirror shade glasses um did you want to kind of as you say get it to be more personal to people's characters well um what i what I sort of saw with it was, um, I wouldn't say that it was missing from Vampire, but what I think it was is that people didn't find it. Because it's very um, it's very easy whenever you're doing a game, whenever you're designing a game, writing a game, whatever, it's very easy to use assumptive language and just sort of gloss over some things. Um, they're, mm. they're, you can state that they're there. You can say there is an apple, but if somebody doesn't have that sort of construct in their mind, if they don't know what an apple is, you have to describe it to them, and you have to give them depth. And I think that, that there's this implication that Vampire is this greatly social game, and there's a lot to do with interactions, interpersonal relationships, um, just what they do when they hang out. Uh, and that's a big part of the game, but it doesn't really get much attention. So I felt that, that that needed to get that attention because a lot of people didn't really know how to fill in those blanks. They didn't know how to do the what, what vampires do in their downtime. Yeah, because um, like Elysium is in the core book is stated, you know, a safe a safe place where vampires can gather. But it's a within the core book, I, I know it's it's a very short description of they they gather and the harpies talk but it's obvious that in invite only you've kind of added more of a more thought into well what are the harpies actually doing and what is this gathering for and that i that i found absolutely you know priceless really because you know no one just has a party for the hell of it that's just an excuse for it all to go wrong um yeah (laughs) Um, I mean, for example, I've done like a, a recently in Vampire Run um, had uh, parties where it's for an upcoming Carthian election, and so that has an obvious goal. Or the characters get invited to a Invictus court because they hold a court that's separate to Elysium, and that's again one of the useful things in Invite Only. You've introduced many different sample parties, all with their own kind of goal and dangers um and uh yeah they're just all of them are excellent to use is there there a particular favorite kind of vampire uh, party you'd you'd use in one of your own games um in in my own games i have um i've actually all of those are from the games that i have run in the past every single one of them was either directly from it or inspired by it um i thought that Invite only was really my chance to sort of show people how I play the game, um, and that that might sound bad to some people. I guess it's um, not that like anyone's doing it wrong or anything, but I have I have an experience, and that's what I want to share with people. Um, I can't really tell them how to do things right or wrong, but I can certainly show them how I've had fun. Um, so so that's really what I did. Every one of the parties, every one of the sample scenes, and even every one of the locations, the sample party places, whatever, that I, I've added in there, those are all things that I've used in my games. Um, my favorite, I, I can't say that I got a favorite party that's in there, but I think my favorite location is the, um, the Hiroshima Club, which is a sort of weird sleazy place where all sorts of things happen basically if anything bad can happen in a city it can happen there yeah that one was that one was an excellent read i think out of all of them um personally because i'm kind of gearing going this way with um season two of my own vampire game so the next chronicle of it um i think the lancare sanctum uh bloodbath and the use of the of a of a mandragora feast was was great to actually just show that the Lancare Sanctum has a has a reason for growing these strange little uh, plants and 
Um, it just came across as it, it makes the Lanco Sanctum seem as as really disturbing as they should be. Um, yeah. I quite enjoyed that one. Um, and the the uh, New York board meeting with the uh, the the voting system so they can be heard before the, the elders um, was again a, kind of a, a stroke of genius I think with with this very um, corporate manner in running the city. Hmm. That's something that I did at a LARP. Um, the that's oh, the brilliant. system with like the marbles. Yeah, we yes. did it at a LARP once a long time ago. It was a it was an old Camarilla LARP. Um, we were all sitting around arguing about the sabat, whatever, and nobody knew who got to talk next, and nobody knew who got the, um, the, the, the necessary attention. So the next game, whenever we had our next debate, I brought a bowl full of marbles, and I made this set of rules that was just a really cutthroat, like, you know, social shark game that people could play in the middle of this argument. So you're basically playing a game while you're arguing. It's a neat system because it it literally means that um, that that you can have have players, especially in the LARP, um, form a block and vote in such a way to to essentially block another group from even having their own say and presenting their yep. own arguments to the board. And that's that's just excellent because um, I can see that useful for not only the Invictus but for Carthians as well. Um, that's no, that's it. That's really cool. And then you also bring into in invite only um, quite a host of of uh, of scenes to use and new devotions. Um, and the two that I really picked out with the devotions were Blase and Killer Instinct. The Killer Instinct one in particular because it's this wonderful uh, social devotion that finally allows the uh, Gangrel to. Uh, have some sort of advantage when talking to people. Um, it's uh, an excellent one. Is there, again, a, a particular devotion that you've included there that you've enjoyed either using or, or seen it used in, a, in a, an amusing or effective manner? Blasé. Blasé is a, um, it's actually kind of twinky um, because of what it, <laughs> what it does. Um, it raises your composure score, so I've mm. seen it used for people to um, to also raise their perception rolls, um, I've used the or I've seen it used to avoid frenzy, all sorts of weird stuff. Oh um, right! It actually, yeah, it's it's very versatile. I didn't I didn't intend it to be so much, but it's kind of cool that it ended up that way. I've I've seen it very cleverly used. Um, Killer Instinct was kind of my answer to what the um, aspect of Predator, Protean 1 does. I, mm. I've seen so many people that are like confused about it and don't really understand the way it works. I think the wording might be a little vague, um, but Killer Instinct is kind of what I wanted it to do. It's, it's thematically what I wanted to happen. Um, mm. I'd say if there's a favorite in there, it's, um, God, what is it called? Um, without consulting, oh, Talk of the Town, Talk of the Town. It's the one that is used in the intro fiction. Um, and clearly I had a lot of investment in that because, you know, it's something that I specifically worked on for a while. So the devotion sort of developed out of the story and I paid a lot of attention to it. So it's my favorite. Cool. Um, and then I think finally, because you, you, it's included as a quite an important discussion, is the use of um, Predator's Taint, everyone's favorite rule in uh, Requiem. And uh, yeah. abused to hell, or uh, misused, or just completely confused in total, because um, you give like three perspectives on how to use it, and I have to say I side with the final one, which is a time and a place. Which is, you do it when it's you make use of predators tank thematically when it's appropriate, but then otherwise, you know, if a vampire knows they're going to a party with other vampires. Their, their beast doesn't fear as much because they already know they're going to it. Is that how you normally make use of Predator's Taint, rather than having to resort to the numerous dice rolls um, that could occur if, it's, if Predator's Taint is taken too far? That section, my, my whole um, section on Predator's Taint, the, the reason I wrote it was because I play in like a million different formats. I, um, I do a lot of tabletop gaming. I do a lot of LARPing. And mm. I also um, am involved in some online games that, uh, that are pretty big. Like I, I run a game that's got like about 100 people in it. 
Um, and in every single one of those instances, Predator's Taint has to work differently. If you just use it as the default in the book, it's kind of rough. Nobody really gets when it comes into play and when's it, when it doesn't. Nobody seems to understand like when, um, when the vampires are just fighting to the death or when they're running away from each other. And then you get this sort of lame impression that all you have to do is spend a point of willpower and you negate it, you go out and beat up a trash can. That doesn't do anything for the theme of the game. Um, so I, I wanted to give options for each different style of play. And I think that the, the time and the place thing really works well in a standard tabletop game. Yeah. Because, yeah, when, when the storyteller wants it to come into play, when they want to make you afraid of someone or they make you want to um, just kick someone's ass, mm. then they throw Predator's Taint at you. Um, and... I love it. I've actually, I've had a number of players who, when I've used that sort of style of Predator's Taint, I've had a number of players um, just say, oh, you know, fuck it. I'm, I'm dropping the, I'm not using my willpower. I'm not even going to make the roll. I'm jumping. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been in the same position. People have just gone, yeah, screw it. Well, kill them. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, excellent. And then finally, is there anything obvious that didn't make the cut um any more locations you know for parties or any characters maybe that didn't make it into invite only um the vast majority of the book is what we expected it to be there's a couple of minor comments and stuff that ended up getting cut um like the um, we shortened we shortened the um, author's notes like I don't have the author's notes in there mm. and I think the only thing oh and basically all that was is my sort of love letter to vampire um, which I'm probably just going to post on the internet at some point um, cool. and the other part let me think there, oh there, there's a um, there was a sort of proto covenant or, or alternative covenant I did a little system on how to create your own covenants. And I used an example um, of an African alternative to the Invictus. And that section got cut, I believe, mostly because it kind of overlapped with what's going, what's gone into Dance Macabre. I didn't know yeah. at the time because I was writing it way before that period. Um, but so it got cut. It didn't want to overlap too much with Dance Macabre. Um, it's a very, very simple version of that sort of thing. It's only a few pages, and it just talks about what is a covenant and why what important things you should consider whenever you're making one and then i use this um this very like sort of um very tribal um invictus model um in in africa where instead of it being um a whole bunch of predators in one city it's one predator per region and they um they just perpetually war with one another and they have this um, complicated system for um, who gets to take territories and win and they these rules keep them from killing one another um, yeah. but yeah that, that section got cut um, I should see if I can get that posted somewhere um, I know Wood's done that a couple times with his cut material so. if people would be interested I'll see about putting it up yeah that sounds really cool I mean overall I think the one thing that strikes me with Invite Only is if you're going to play Vampire, you should immediately read this straight after. Because to me, Vampire is, going, is, is really a series of different gatherings and of, for either the Coterie or the Coterie and some other people. It's really what then occurs in between those are a result of those gatherings. And um, I think you can get lost in just having oh, they just turn up at a party and it becomes very generic. And yeah, I find Invite Only just literally what I've kind of run as well for the, most of my time playing Vampire, especially Requiem. So no, it's an excellent PDF to read through. Um, Thank you. So yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, it's, it's really good to hear. I think they're actually doing the print version of it too. I think that's coming out like maybe in a couple of months. Uh, awesome, because I've also been Very looking cool. at... I've seen the print version in um, in a shop of... Uh, which vampire book am I thinking of? New Wave Requiem. New Wave Requiem and gone, oh, please. So I need to pick that up um, when I get some money in the next few weeks' time. Um, yeah. 
that's definitely on my list as well. But yeah, invite only. I would say to anyone, get the damn PDF and read it because it's bloody useful. It's good to hear. Right. Thank you. All right, so let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the Forsaken Chronicler's Guide. Now, unlike Chris, I didn't do all my homework, and I've only read a little bit of this book, uh, specifically the the first section written by Chuck Wendig. And I've I've got to say, David, uh, excellent developer leadership, giving Chuck Wendig probably one of the funniest guys on the White Wolf staff, the uh, awkward Hilarious. teenage werewolf uh, section to write about. <laughs> yes thank you thanks to chuck windig the first page of the book has the word fuck baskets in it (laughs) Um, yes chuck chuck did very very well with that section um i knew that i wanted something like sort of ginger snaps um sort of like coming of age and i told chuck um can you do this and he was like of course and he handed me something that just blew my expectations loved it yeah, that's one of the things that I really noticed about this, this source book. Straight off the bat, it seems like what you're trying to do was take Werewolf the Forsaken, and then you looked at other forms of media, uh, other movies like Ginger Snaps, as you mentioned, uh, American Werewolf in London, and you wanted to a- adapt Werewolf uh, to those, those themes of those movies and, uh, and other works. But beyond that, what were, what were the big ideas you wanted to get across with the Forsaken Chronicler's Guide? Okay, so I, I absolutely love Forsaken, but what Forsaken does is uh, um, it's um, advertised as a role-playing game of savage horror, storytelling game of savage horror. I think that a lot of the game is um, not sure what it wants to do sometimes. It's got like all this, this awesome animism. It's got all of these, these weird duty setups um, going on. And it, it's, it's got, it addresses a lot of different things. But then um, when, I, when I was going to pitch this book, I asked people on, like I, I asked on Twitter and on Facebook, I asked them, what is werewolf to you? What is a werewolf to you? And I got like 50 responses and very few of them applied to the basic model. So what I wanted to do was just take Forsaken and just like toss it in different directions, take the concepts out of Forsaken that I love, and then just throw them at the wall and see what comes out. Um, and that's what we did. We just went completely like 180 with every single instance in that book, every piece of it. We just went as far from the core as we could while still kind of clinging on to a basic idea. Yeah, wow. and, and you've got this... Um... You did something pretty similar to the other Chronicler's Guides, the Rec Room Chronicler's Guide and the, uh, the Mage one, where you decided to take the base game and then, and then show storytellers how to take in different directions. But the Forsaken Chronicler's Guide is unique because uh, it's using this new subscription model where um, people have the option of you can just buy uh, one volume, which gives you which gives you three different scenarios, or you can get the subscription and you get all, uh, I believe it's 12 total. Uh, 13. So uh, how did you how did you change the Chronicler's Guide to, to adapt to this new model, or did it even really affect you at all? Well, it, it's not a lot different than the initial pitch. Um, whenever I first pitched the book, I... Um, you know, it, I was pitching it as a PDF product. I knew that um, Forsaken probably wasn't going to get a Chronicler's Guide in the traditional sense, like a you know full, huge book or anything like that. So I figured, hey, I'd pitch this shorter thing and then try to do a whole bunch with the word count. So I pitched all these wee little kits. Um, talked to Eddie Webb about it. Eddie was like, why don't you just develop it? You know, pick pick the writers that you think can best suit um, the pieces that you're looking to work on. And then, you know, we'll just run from there. We'll see how it develops. And then he comes back to me the next week and he's like, can you do this as a subscription model the way that we did the, um, the Scion Companion? And I looked at it for a moment and I was like, well, um, it's actually not a whole bunch different. I modified a couple things. Basically, and it, it kind of comes back to the original idea. We're just sort of tearing it apart, throwing it at the wall, whatever. So that's each of the four sections is um, a, a major change in the way we look at Forsaken. Um, the first section, we're tearing out a part of it. The next section, we're throwing something back in. And in like the third section, we're doing completely weird crap with it. And then the fourth section, we're remixing everything and doing the same thing with different rules. Um, so basically, each one of the sections is a, a, a different way to completely hack the game. 
and three or four examples of how to do that. And mm. uh, in regard to the subscription model, I'm sure you haven't gotten any numbers, and even if you did, you couldn't really share them. But have you have you heard uh, if people are really digging the individual volumes, or if people are most people are getting just the full subscription? Um, you know, I don't know. The only thing I could tell you that I, I'm aware of is I, I know that the subscription itself is a um, bestseller on drive-thru and it's on the top 10 and it's been there pretty much consistently since it's come out. So I imagine that people are excited about the whole subscription. I think that as far as the individual parts go, the third and the fourth part are probably the ones that would interest people individually the most. I know the third part, we do a lot of like complete chronicle changes. Like there's a, a mini chronicle set in ancient Sumer. There's also a sort of like kind of werewolf the apocalypse big epic scale type thing going on and then the fourth one is all rules hacks so i figure that they're they're probably the ones with the most individual appeal um, but i haven't gotten much input and feedback on that i haven't heard a lot um most everyone that i've talked to has told me they got the whole subscription yeah i did that as well so uh that's just another one right there um <laughs> and my final question is uh which if any of these these uh, these changes have you used in your own Forsaken game? Um, I have used the... I, wanna, I, I can't remember if they're called the Cursed. I, I believe so. Matt McFarlane did um, in the first section where you've got these intensely powerful, like, immortal werewolves. I've used them as um, antagonists in a couple of situations now um, when I was testing them out and running with that. Um, also, Chuck Windig's Wild Children, I did a little little uh, thing with. I really want to run a Chronicle with them. Um, I don't know if they've been released yet. I can't remember. I think No, no, no. They're in the fourth section. Um, and what they are is they're like a, um, a whole new approach to werewolf. They're, they can't turn into werewolves, per se. They get claws. They get fangs. And they're more or less people that are ruled by their vices. So they get a, go around fucking and killing everything around them um and they're just these self-destructive mongrels um and it's just unapologetic fun i've done those um and we played around with philomena's um romance section a little bit she and i did whenever we were testing the rules for it but those are the only ones i've actively played oh very cool very good um lot to choose from there yeah yeah, I've got to say, uh, the subscription is only $10, and uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm very happy with it so far, uh, with just the two sections that we've got, the two volumes, and there's plenty of ideas, it seems. I'm really hoping to uh, dig into it real soon. Yeah. I'm hoping that if people get it, that um, it'll it'll tell them that there's a lot of interest in Werewolf the Forsaken. I think that um, Forsaken really needed some identity, and it needed some, um, some love. Um, it hasn't gotten a lot of books recently, but I think the last one that came out in a while was um, Signs of the Moon, and I, th I think that's a shame. I love Werewolf, and I think that people need to tell White Wolf that they love Werewolf. Indeed. I definitely need to play more Werewolf. I think I've run, unfortunately, only been in the position of running like four sessions ever, and um, but I don't see what the problem is with it at all. It's um, it's a wonderful game. Um, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to the remix section then with uh, playing around with the rules a bit more. That'll be uh, good fun. And the the ancient sumo, I can see that just also be uh, wonderful to plunder for um, for mage, even um, something that's set in the ancient world. Um, I can imagine mages going after anything that's made of moon silver and made by whales and going, that's a kick-ass artifact. Good. Well, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit. All right, and we'll talk about... Uh... David, your work uh, for Machine Age Productions a little bit. Of course, yeah. last year, uh, about a year ago now, you came on to Darker Days and talked about Machine Zeit. And uh, I got my book in the mail uh, about in November, and I've been really digging it. I haven't read the rules too much, but definitely the, uh, the fiction's pretty hysterical. So I was just wondering, um, how, how has that been received? Like, what kind of feedback have you gotten? gotten excellent feedback honestly I've, I've heard a lot of really really touching really great things about it i mean there's been a little bit of a um, little bit of criticism that i have learned for, from and it's all like minor stuff um things that things that if i were doing a second edition i could easily fix um 
but for the most part, it's been a really wonderful um, process. We've we've sold a lot more copies than I expected to. We've gotten a lot of really cool, really positive attention. And I will note that the um, you, you were saying that the fiction at the beginning is um, is really hilarious. Um, that's also Chuck Wendig. That's probably why he's too funny for his own good. Hmm. And of course, you've got this new upcoming project, a marathon, and it's. I haven't heard that much about it, actually. Um, so I'd be interested if you could give us just a little a summary about uh, what this game is all about. Um, we were the other day. We were trying to, to sum it up in a sentence, and it was very, very hard. I think the um, the one that um, stuck was um, Highlander, except with less taking heads and more giving head. Um, <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> That's a really bad summary, but basically the game is about people that reincarnate um, over and over, and they don't really remember their past lives very well, but they can if, if the need arises, or whenever they meet people that they've met in past lives. Um, kind of think of it like Predator's Taint. Whenever you meet another immortal, if you've met them before, you sort of have a, a mutual flashback of an important time that you knew one another. And they can also they call on their their flashbacks in order to do great and amazing things. If you're leaping from roof, rooftops, kicking someone's ass, you recall the time that you know you were jumping through the streets of Venice or whatever. Um, you don't develop a background at the beginning of the game. What you do is improvise it as the game goes on. So it's a game about epic vendettas and epic romance and all sorts of just very big over the top badassery. That's well, very cool. <laughs> Uh, well, I've been following all the uh, the blog posts of it. So um, when I first read through it, read through what's been turned up on on the blog, and um, my initial thought was, it, it it had elements to it which seemed to um, that I remember from trying, tr I say trying to create a uh, character for uh, Nephilim uh, a few years back. And again, in Nephilim, there's a lot to do with reincarnation of um, old souls through the ages. And um, the difference being that Nephilim was such a pain in the ass to create characters for, whereas um, Aramanthine feels uh, definitely easier to make characters for. Um, and I definitely look forward to actually um, making use of it. Um, and especially the character, the, how you make um, groups, your, um, your podcast recording of uh, of character development and character creation is just brilliant because I think, as I said, more people need to um, think about that when creating groups of characters for whatever roleplay game they're playing. You you mentioned Nephilim. I've mm. read parts of that book. Um, I it wasn't. It wasn't really the game for me. There's a lot of really interesting ideas in there. Um, oh, not yeah. Not completely thrilled with the execution, but it is, it is interesting. It is an engaging read. Um, it's the, the, the thing that, that is, is great about it was the, the reincarnation and remembering past lives, and that's all really yeah. great. The thing that hampered it completely was rules and how you worked out those past lives, and it was percentile table after percentile table and one age you're a farmer and another age you're a high priest whatever and then suddenly it's you're getting reincarnated during Tudor period and it well, it made creating the character more effort whereas as you said you you through through playing Aramanthine you're saying that you you have a memory of doing something and then that memory allows you to do something in the present yeah, it's all it's all improvised. I've, um, I mean, I've got as I said, I got a history of playing LARPs, um, and I've played vampire LARPs where people have given me 30, 40 page backgrounds, and I, I don't think that that's character creation. I think that that is like, that's role playing masturbation. Um, it's not really bringing anything to the table, honestly. It doesn't do anything for me. So with um, with an amaranthine character, yeah, you reincarnate. It's it's not dissimilar from Nephilim. The I guess the one big difference is is that we don't make it clear where these people came from. Um, we mm. give a couple of ideas for when that happened. Probably a, something to do with some of the first cities in civilization. Um, but we kind of leave that up in the air because we want to give you that freedom. And when you're at the table and you're playing with people that have never played before, 
um, you can just look to them and they say, okay, well, I'm stabbing this guy. Um, can, can I use my memory power? And we say, okay, awesome. Think about a time where you stabbed someone else. And you would be surprised at the crap they come up with. Um, they'll tell you about the time that they were a farmer and they stabbed someone with a pitchfork. The time that they were, you know, on a rooftop stabbing the marquee or something. And um, that's really the beauty of it. We were talking that you said that you were listening to the podcast with character creation. One of those players yeah. has never played a role playing game before, and we yeah. make characters in thirty eight minutes. That's great. Um, you say with the reincarnation. Um, the one thing that I was quite interested, interested with that is when the, a character dies and then is reincarnated, is this an immediate reincarnation or is it the idea their soul goes off somewhere or resides somewhere until an appropriate time of reincarnation or is that something you're going to uh, get into a bit more? Um, oh, and the other thing I was going to ask is, are the... Amaranthine um, also, not only do they reincarnate, but all, uh, do they have um, a degree of immortality? So are they long-lived, as in they live for 200 years or 300 years before they die and reincarnate it? I wanted to get an idea of the scale of how immortal they are. Well, um, one of the signature characters who you can make with the standard creation rules, um, she's been around for about 5,000 years. She's lived... Um, over a thousand lives, um, some of them very, very short. Um, they they reincarnate usually immediately, but there's no hard rule about that. You might die, and then for some reason you come back 20, 30 years later. Mm. The, the Amaranthine don't understand why that is. Um, they have no idea. The sort of um, the engine behind the reincarnation, the immortality, and all of that, we um, we attribute to a, a sort of alternate plane called the void very sort of lovecraftian place um it is a place where things are born and things are destroyed it doesn't understand our world it it's not really compatible with our world but it wants to be here and somehow amaranthine are tied to that um they again they don't really understand it some of them have a more intimate connection to it but even then it's it's beyond their real comprehension um and it, it controls that. It, it is a big part of it. Um, and that's the reason why we don't have the hard rules, because there are no hard rules with it. It's, um, it's just this, this real abstract force. Now, as far as their, um, their lifespans, their lifespans are roughly human. They are remarkably lucky. They have a, a very, very high level of control over luck. For example, if you are in a gunfight with an amaranthine, you will never shoot them in the heart. Um, you will shoot them in the shoulder. They, it, they just, they're lucky bastards. Um, they, are, they are the cool kids. They always win. Um, and it is very frustrating for humans, but when amaranthine clash, it, it makes it a lot bigger. Cool. So, David, um, how exactly does this reincarnation work? Do they are they in like a, a similar looking body when they come back, or is it like a, a new body? Ninety nine times out of a hundred, they are in a completely different body, completely different place, um, completely different region. Even um, there are some amaranthine that are tied to a region and tied to a bloodline. Uh, they are considered either blessed or cursed. Some people think that they are. Um, blessed for being uh, being able to experience the same area and really take advantage of that knowledge. And then there's other people that think that it's boring, that it's a waste of their, their destiny. Um, they don't get to travel the world. So usually the, it's a different body, different time, different place, but not always. I, I gotta say, the, the question that has been stuck in my mind for this entire uh, segment has been... Um, are there rules for playing Highlander the RPG, basically? Because the Highlander series really needs an RPG, and this almost fits the bill. Because, yeah. like, uh, the, the coolest parts of Highlander are obviously the sword fights and then the flashbacks. And this uh, Amaranthine really has the flashbacks covered, I think. Yeah, and the sword fights. Sword fights are a big part of it. <laughs> nice. Our, our marketing material is mostly people sword fighting on rooftops. Really, that's that's a big part of why we made the game. Um, Highlander is one really good example. We, Philomena, my my wife and head writer and I, we um, 
sat down and watched Highlander not too long ago, and we realized that it was actually a kind of um, super, super campy, really strangely written movie. I remembered it being a lot like more profound when I was a teenager, I guess. <laughs> Um, but yeah. there are these really charming, really cool parts of it. And I think that if you you'd sort of take those out and filter them through a, a sort of modern sensibility, that's what Amaranthine is. It's um, just unapologetic action, unapologetic, you know, pathos and emotion for the sake of it. We're just we're telling really dramatic, really cool stories. And we're not really focusing too much on what would make sense in the real world because honestly like nitpicking eh, that's not for me i don't care i, I want to tell a cool story and that's what amaranthine lets you do that's brilliant um the rule system or at least the um the the interesting things to do with the rules are these relationship wheels and chess boards that you've mentioned and you've in on your blog you've talked a little about the relationship wheels but um can you give us a bit more insight onto how that works and how the chessboards fit in as well? So I'm really intrigued on having this chessboard there in the game and how it, uh, you know, how you interface with it, how your characters uh, interact with it. Well, the chessboard thing is actually, and disappointingly so, it's it it is cut in the final version, but we are going to ah. be offering optional rules for it. I know, right? There's a good <laughs> reason for that, though. Um, this is this is the most sort of gamey game, um, the, the most system-heavy game that I've designed personally. Um, that doesn't mean that it's a very system-heavy game. It's just that I, I usually do really story-based games with very light rules. Mm. Um, and our relationship wheel really stood up, and it, it grabbed the game, and it told us it really needed to be expounded upon. And as we started developing the relationship wheel, we got to the point where the chessboard mechanic got to where it was um it was it was too much work when you had to do that and the relationship wheel because the relationship wheel is um is separate from your main sheet basically um trying to think of an easy way to describe it like you have your you have your basic character sheet and then you have a second page that has all of your your major relationships with your nemeses with your friends all, all the other pcs and all of that um and every time you do something big and epic you put something at risk. You you put a relationship at risk. And we were going to have it that you could risk your pawns, you could risk your, your sort of agents on the street, but we found that that, that took too much time um, for your average game, and it really bogged down the way that, um, the way that we envision the game as being played. Um, so we ended up removing the chess mechanic. I will be writing optional rules for that, though. That'll probably be in our first supplement. Relationship wheel. Basically, what it does is it, it, it manipulates the flow, the ebb and flow of a relationship. The the analogy that I've used a few times now is um, Spider-Man and Mar Mary Jane. Um, when he comes home after you know swinging across rooftops and getting in mortal danger all the time and whatever, she has her bags packed. She's ready to go. So he really has to sort of stem that that flow and really make some effort, usually saving her life from falling or something. Um, but he has to do something big to manipulate the relationship in the other direction. And so we have a sort of, a sort of complex social mechanic um, with maneuvers and such that you can do depending on where on the relationship wheel you are. <laughs> no, the relationship wheels sound good. So the, the chessboard was then, going back to that, that was meant to be kind of like looking at the story in a, in a grander way. Um, how your characters relate to the world at large because i the thing that um i think the the comparison like i get with um the chess what you were saying with the chessboard was um in fading suns they had the idea of um of the passion play and how you could get extra bonuses in the game by looking at the game through the lens of 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 how your your character's actions had meaning on a on a grander um on a grander scale, um, in a more kind of, I guess, more it, where, where people are reading into the action. So you're not just say interact. You're not just say uh, interacting with say a count at court. It becomes something more meaningful to other people, um, such as oh well, that was obviously them talking, and it meant that well he was an agent for chaos, and it has all these flows into this larger m macro. Um, 
scale of the game. So I can see I can see how the chessboard could be used um, as a as a as a as a physical manifestation of of passion play. It's a bit hard to explain because I've been trying to also get back into playing Fading Suns recently and going, yes, I want to use passion play, but it's working out how to make use of it in the best way possible. Have you ever looked at other other games that could simplify um, what you were trying to represent with the chessboard? Because I guess there's there's other ways of representing how you're sacrificing and manoeuvring things um, in a on the grand scale. Well, what I what I ended up doing with that, and it's sort of a sort of a theory argument for why I dumped the chessboard. Mm. Um, you still have you still have all of the elements that you would. You you still have followers. Uh, Amaranthine are really popular. They do awesome things. People will flock to them. They can more or less like enchant people to um, admire them. Um, so they have all these hangers on, and they have these sort of like paper armies that they can throw out there. And the one of the the big reasons why I cut the chessboard is because I didn't want to make it so there was much chance of success or failure, much focus on that. Um, if you want to throw all of your followers at something, and if you really want to impact the world on that grand of a scale, um, we have a mechanic for that. We have that. It's, it's even a part of the character creation system, but it's much lighter, um, and it's mm. much more abstract. Um, it's very similar to Fate's aspects, and the, I guess the big difference is you put them on risk. Um, so, like, if I'm, for example, if I'm, if I'm making a political action against one of my enemies and I have influence over a street gang and I have this sort of um, aspect of my character sheet, I'm putting that up for risk. And that's, um, that's going to be determined by, you know, the, co the contest. We, we make roles and whatever and um, we escalate this conflict. And that really is um that that's it it's it's very simple because i i wanted to i wanted to give it that that simplicity i wanted to be able to say oh i'm throwing this street gang i'm throwing this this group of cops at a problem i either win or lose and it's done mm. it's it's inconsequential to me because i'm so so awesome so influential that it's like a pawn uh, but you don't really get that with a chessboard. With a chessboard, you get move the pawn, move the pawn, yeah. move the pawn, move the pawn, fail. And it, it it's slow. I wanted it to be something you could not really gloss over, but something you could just topple real quick. Yeah. I, I know, I completely understand that. You wanted something that had a, a, a very immediate, tangible result rather than having to play through however many turns of of chess using those using mm -hmm. chess's rules i mean because i immediately thought when you you said you wanted something simpler to represent where you're you're sacrificing something or putting a, a piece into play um have you ever looked at a, a whether it be an option to to make use of and i'm now considering it when i get around to playing amaranthine because i have it definitely on my list of things to do um <laughs> is uh, a game called um let me get it right it's called zerts and it comes from a series of game called GIPF, that's G-I-P-F, and they're very simple, abstract um, board games. And one of them, which is called Zerts, is about, uh, has only two moves in the game, and they're about placing a piece onto the board, and or, you, or because there is a, a, a capture position that is available, you have to make the capture position rather than placing the piece on the board. So it's all about board control. And so you could almost represent these large grand actions of you placing either a piece on the board or you've been forced into making a capture. So um, I think maybe you should look at that because I think it's it may be the right kind of... Um, it might have the right kind of dynamic you need to represent what you were trying to do with chess. I'd never heard about that before, but as you were talking about it, I was just Googling it, and it sounds really fascinating. Um, the, yeah, the, the way that we were going to do the chess mechanic was really going to be um, that game actions would influence and reflect on what you are able to do on the board. Um, so it, it would have been kind of similar to that. A, a little bit a little bit more complex, because we were going to integrate the magic system into it. But mm. honestly, we got to a point where, like, we were looking at a 350-page book, and uh, 
that would have gotten really complex. But yeah, like I'm I'm really looking to um to give people the chance to do that macrocosm game. Um, one of the things that I, I I want Amaranthine to do a lot of different things. One of the things that I want it to do that I don't think that it does as well as it could yet is doing the macrocosm game, the doing the playing mm. chess with your followers. Um, right now it is a simpler system. It is, you know, throwing your followers at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, but I definitely want to add those optional rules, and I'm, I'm definitely going to be developing some um, additional material for that. The um, I think really where it um, where where the the chess mechanic fell apart the most, where it really stopped working for us, is when we developed the the final iteration of the core mechanic, which is um, we stopped caring about success or failure so much. Like we didn't, we we realized that we had a conflict resolution system, and that's not really what we wanted. We wanted mm. a system that could uh, talk more. Less about success and failure, and more about what you're willing to do to get there. Yeah. So it's all about like escalation. Um, yes. If you are fighting someone, it's what you are willing to put on the line. So you have like three or four chances during any given conflict to put some more stakes on the table, and that fell apart with the chess thing because in chess you either lose the piece or you don't. It's very binary. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. That's um because you could almost you could almost try and have done the same thing by using say go, which again is you're playing more pieces onto the board, um, mm -hmm. and and I think maybe Zertz might offer you the the option around it because it's not binary. It has multiple yeah. winning scenarios, and it's about it's about forcing your opponent to capture pieces that mean that moves them into a position where they're no closer to winning. So that when you capture, where you're forced to capture, you're always capturing in such a way to win. And the beauty about the board, why it may work for the macrocosm, is because there are three colors of pieces. So there are four ways of winning. And also the board shrinks as the game goes on, which could almost represent how, as this grand play is, being, is, is literally being played out, the, the, the board shrinking is almost like, well, the, the players in the game having less room to maneuver as resources are used up and you know uh, and you know people die and you have no more room to maneuver because you've got to take this action because all of our actions have been used up um, I think it might offer the right kind of comparison that you're, well that you're looking for what's next because you've got the um, the anthology coming up as well because you you um you, you you hit your threshold that you needed for your Kickstarter so what's the plan for the uh, the anthology then? I'm very close to my goal for the anthology because I hit my ma my main goal, which was enough mm. to get the game printed. And then I've got um, my, my next goal is about $240 from now on as far as pre-orders go. If I get that, then we're doing the anthology, which is a weird experiment that I've always wanted to do. Um, it's sort of justified by the fact that... Um, all of our gaming experiences are really just emulations of genre fiction. Um, so this anthology is going to be an anthology of fiction pieces set in Amaranthine's world um, today um, about all of these immortals. But um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take apart the outlines that the authors uh, are submitting to me. I'm going to rip them apart and I'm going to turn them into game mechanics. I'm going to turn them into like plot items and stuff. So if you read the story and you think it's cool then you can run that as a story. You'll have all these, like, you know, you, there, I might add, like, extra spells or something to the list. It'll just add some more material to the game. Um, and we're going to do it like a um, traditional paperback. We're going to do it like a little dime novel instead of the full, you know, traditional RPG supplement. Uh, because right, I think cool. that that's sort of fun niche. Yeah. Very cool. And um, can you just give us some more information about your uh, Kickstarter campaign that's going on right now? Yeah, well, um, this is this is the second Kickstarter we did because we did one for um, Machine Zite. I was very surprised with the response on Machine Zite. Um, we exceeded our goal by like 410%. It was crazy. Um, so this time around, we did a more ambitious project. Um, Kickstarter, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a really fun crowdsourcing way to um, raise the money for a project. Um, we get pledges, and at different pledge levels, we offer different stuff. Now, as little as um, you get named in the book, um, you get a PDF, 
all the way up to um, I will take you to dinner at a convention if we're around each other, um, or at the highest level, um, I will write a 25,000 word supplement um, game, whatever. You get 25,000 words from me at half of my normal rate. Um, so we really wanted to, to offer people a lot of options. We're also we're, we're get, releasing it on a flash drive this year as well as the hard copy. Um, we're doing traditional PDF. And so at every range of the Kickstarter, you get a different prize, basically. You get a different thing. Um, they're not a lot different than the normal um, retail prices that we expect to charge for the game. It's just this is our way of knowing ahead of time what we're going to have available for printing. And David, uh, where can people check out your work online? MachineAgeProductions.com is the primary website. It has all of the information. I blog about Amaranthine probably about every two to three days during the development process. I put all kinds of crap up there. I just put up the character creation chapter while we were speaking. I've put up uh, two chapters and a couple of outlines now, lots lots of material. Um, I really wanted to sort of build a community there. Also, the Kickstarter site, um, if you go to Kickstarter and you search for Amaranthine, you'll find it, or you can just find the link at our website. Um, I do uh, also Twitter, David A. Hill Jr. Um, Twitter is probably the place where I post most material, just in the smallest format. Very cool. Yeah, we'll put a uh, link in the show notes to your Kickstarter site. All right, David, I've got one last question for you. If you had to choose a porn star name, what would it be <laughs> and why? Oh, okay. So let's see. I would say... Little Orphan David. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> that's, uh, I don't know if that's going to get you a lot of sales, but that's something. If it doesn't scare anyone away, I've won. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very cool. Well, David, thank you very much for the outstanding interview. And Chris, sorry for keeping you up so late. No, that's fine. It's, um, I'm all right. It's not too late. <laughs> all right. Very cool. I think we're out of here. We're done. Ciao.